Hey everyone, welcome to Chiropractical. Thank you for the tremendous response and support of our prior episodes. We're glad to have you back. Chiropractical is a brand new podcast about chiropractors for chiropractors. And at NCMIC, our motto is we take care of our own and this is just one more way of demonstrating that. This show is designed to help you regardless of where you are in your career. My name's Chick Herbert. I'm the co-host of Chiropractical, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Melissa Knutson, my co-host, and we have a great lineup of guests for your enjoyment and education. Today, we're joined by Sarah Noel Wilson. Sarah is an executive coach, researcher, keynote speaker, and an all-around awesome person. She's going to talk to us about the impact that we have on others, whether it's intentional or not, and to be aware of the difference, and then how we can deal with the prolonged stress we might be facing through COVID and other events in our community. We're also excited to bring two of our student ambassadors that are part of the NCMIC Starting Into Practice program. The role of the student ambassador is to help engage students on campus with the resources that NCMIC makes available both in person and online. Leah Dash and Ian Lee are entering their last year of chiropractic school. We'll talk about how they've had to adjust their college experience and their clinicals due to COVID. We'll also talk about what the profession can do to help support those students that are graduating. And with that, let's get started. Ian and Leah, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Ian. I am a seventh tri student. I go to the National University of Health Sciences in, uh, in Florida. In my spare time, I like to spend time at the beach. I like to surf. I like to play volleyball. And I really like working out whenever I can. Hey, my name is Leah Dash. I'm an eighth quarter student at UWS. I actually transferred from SCU about a year and a half ago, and I'm loving it up in Portland. I'm from South Florida originally, so while I find it a little chilly up here, I'm loving all the time I get to spend outdoors, hiking, spending time on the river. What made you decide to get into chiropractic? So I loved anatomy already, and I thought that I wanted to be a medical doctor, an MD, and the more that I shadowed and the more that I experienced the field, I just wasn't happy with the way that the profession was going as far as pharmaceutical dependency and stuff like that. So I came back to chiropractic because I'd been to one, you know, and I'd never really looked into what they studied. And I looked at the curriculum and I knew that I loved all of these classes and all of these subjects. And I shadowed a few more before starting school and I knew that I loved it. I, I swam in college and I saw a chiropractor then as well. Just a ton of benefits with swimming and keeping myself healthy. Um, I didn't have any injuries really, uh, which is pretty rare for swimmers. So I saw that conservative care really has its place in medicine. I grew up in a military family and I saw some healthcare inadequacies, some some shortcomings, especially with veterans, especially with active duty. So I saw that there was this, this gap in coverage and this gap in health care for those populations. Well, Ian, I'm the father of two veterans. So great. as a father of two veterans, thank you. And I yeah. have a, a great appreciation for people that treat that population in whatever manner that is. And certainly a soft spot as a dad. What's life like now as a chiropractic student compared to five, six months ago? I've never been an online student, so that has been quite an adjustment. Not to mention the fact that we're not, you know, adjusting like we used to, not to make the pun, but I can't avoid it. 
So things have just really changed. We moved campuses. So a lot of us were a little sad. We never got to say goodbye to the last school. It's been an adaptation for sure. Mm -hmm. I actually kind of like having some of my classes online. And I do miss seeing my classmates. I miss being able to ask my professors a ton of questions. At National in Florida, we have pretty small classes, like 10 students usually. So we're all really close. We all have really open communication with our professors. Ian, how are you staying in touch with your fellow classmates? How are you maintaining those relationships with your professors? So our professors are great. They, a lot of them have shared their, their phone numbers with us, like their cell phones. So if we do have questions, they're really open about, you know, just saying, like, text me if you have a problem or give me a call. They've been really good about communicating. And then with my classmates, we, we have a group chat on our phones. So we, we stay in touch, you know, every day. You're in a program that requires hands-on. And mm -hmm. so can you shed a little bit of light about how that has been not having that opportunity? Yeah. So thankfully, um, I'm an upper term student. So I've had most of my adjusting classes. But last term, I was supposed to take extremity adjusting. So we did that remote. Uh, and then finally, we started back on campus this term. And I'm actually a new clinic student. So I'm you know, starting to treat the public. And extremity is something I've never done on a person, and we had to be signed off and tested. Have you heard of any creative solutions that you or other students have done to fill in that gap? We've tried doing like the psychomotor skills as far as like practicing an HVLA like movement just so our muscle memory stays. And mm -hmm. I built like those adjusting dummies that are essentially like wood and a PVC pipe covered in carpet padding, covered in vinyl. It's not the same as a person, right? I mean, Tactically, things are so different. Balancing a body on a table and side posture is so different. So it's really not anything we can exchange for hand signs. I've taken this time to really beef up my rehab skills um, and, and do a little bit more reading about just physical therapy modalities. And so I've been doing a lot of work with that. So as you're in this unique time, are there concerns that you have now that you didn't have six months ago? The next year in general, I'm hoping that I'm able to make up for the time lost. And I know that we were reassured by our professors that our clinicians will be lenient and they will be helpful and they will try to make us as competent as possible. But at the end of the day, if patients don't come into clinic, I am not going to be able to perfect my adjusting skills prior to graduating. So we don't know if that same courtesy will be extended to us by doctors in the field who are hopefully going to hire us or by our future patients who you know, may have to understand that we're still developing our skills when we first open an office, if that's our choice. Last year, there was a bill introduced to Congress. Uh, it's HR 3654. That is a, a big bill promoting chiropractic and Medicare equality. I would, I would love to see that bill pass. I'd love to see a lot of people support that bill. The current legislation is really outdated and it, pushing this bill and, and getting this bill passed would support chiropractors in total and, and really be so good for, for young students like me and Leah, people who are, are entering the workforce would really be a game changer for us. I know that you're student ambassadors and you're very involved in the profession. How are you holding up personally, Leah? And I know you're an EMT or you were an yeah. EMT. So you've, you've had a in that profession, you see lots of things uh, mm -hmm. that could be difficult to deal with. How, how about you from an emotional resiliency and just taking care of yourself? Personally, I didn't hate the idea of being home. 
Um, I've actually, I picked up a new hobby, which is woodworking. So it gave me a lot of time to do that, which is a great stress reliever from school. I actually also reached out to a lot of doctors in the area because chiropractors are still working. So I have gone and knocked on doors and introduced myself because I know that it's going to be difficult for us to find a job. So I've started looking for a preceptor now. And I found that a lot of doctors were pretty receptive to that. So even though it's in the middle of a pandemic, medicine continues. So I've really enjoyed, you know, having that time to prepare in advance. Yeah. And as you think about your future and you, you think down the road, uh, when you, you've got the training that you need and you're ready to start looking for those jobs, what, as we have a lot of listeners here that could be potentially your future employer, what type of a practice are you looking to join? I want to treat the whole person and I want to treat every single type of patient. I like the everyday patient. I like the weekend warrior. I like, you know, patients like myself that are getting into new hobbies and maybe need a little help. Um, So I'd really like a family practice and I like to use every modality available. I'm not in a niche of any type. I'm just open to everything. So I'd like to, you know, in broad strokes, just uh, work into uh, like an integrated practice. Really my dream is to work for the VA so I would be a part of, you know, going through that residency program and then working for the VA treating veterans and treating military populations. If you think about the chiropractic practice as a business outside of the patient care, do you have any concerns? Because that's certainly not your primary focus as you're going through school. I kind of look forward to running a, a, a business if that if, if the VA doesn't work out and I and I do go down the path of private practice. I do look forward to running a practice. So I want to make sure that I do so with the patient in mind, making sure that they still are getting the best treatment. Good. Yeah, that's a a great perspective. I'll say that uh, being an ambassador for the Starting Into Practice program has actually been really helpful. So I'm actually really thankful for that resource. So I will say that that concern is kind of taken care of thanks to you guys. Thanks again for making time this morning. We really appreciate it. Nice to meet both of you. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Mike Whitmer with NCMIC. Doctors ask me all the time about risk management issues they're facing in practice. We wanted to address these questions for you each episode of Chiropractical. We call it Ask NCMIC. If you have questions for us, you can send us an email at askncmic at ncmic.com. This episode's question comes from Dr. Rebecca in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Rebecca asks, is there anything I need to modify with respect to my informed consent processes for a telehealth environment? We asked John Floyd, one of our expert defense attorneys in Nashville, Tennessee, to address this question. So each informed consent that you provide to a patient is going to be based upon that state's particular laws. So it's important that you know what that state requires. But in general, relative to telehealth, I think it's very important that you document in the record that you did, in fact, have a discussion with the patient regarding the risk, the benefits, and alternatives to treatment. A lot of times, my doctors rely upon the standard written informed consent document, and they don't document the discussion in the record. But if you're doing telehealth or telemedicine, then sometimes you may not have that written documentation to follow back up on. So it's important that you at least document the record that you did have that discussion. 
Today we have Sarah Noel Wilson with us, and I first came to know Sarah about three years ago as an audience member at a women's leadership event. Sarah has a beautiful way of helping others understand the human experience mm -hmm. while bringing levity and a sense of playfulness to the room. And at NCMIC, our motto is we take care of our own. And as we hit this pandemic, our employees were facing stress like they have not experienced in the past. And because of that, we invited Sarah to speak to our team to talk to them about how to deal with stress and how to be resilient during these times. So today, we invite Sarah to talk with all of us and share her experiences with our listeners and hopefully help all of you on how to get through these challenging times as well. So with that, thank you for joining us, Sarah. I'm so honored and excited to be here with you both and with everyone who's listening. So Sarah, while many of our listeners continue to see patients and manage their practices, the world beyond their four walls is certainly different than it was six months ago. And you talk about the environment of prolonged stress. Mm. Can you talk about what you mean by that term and just elaborate on that a bit? I mean, we, we are in a really unique time as individuals and as a world and as leaders and as business owners um, in that we are under this constant prolonged exposure to stress related, you know, both to the pandemic, but also other uh, events in our community from the racial inequality uh, amplification that's been happening. You know, one of the things we have to recognize is that even though we're four and a half, five months in and we feel like we're starting to get our, you know, our patterns down and we've, we know how we're working from home or we know how we're keeping ourselves safe, hopefully, um, we have to understand that our brain is still just constantly aware of this real threat that's out there. And even if it's not, even if we're not aware of it consciously, our bodies and our minds are very aware of it at a subconscious level and that you know i like to use the analogy of when we have stress especially you know prolonged exposure to stress it's like a, an app that's running on your phone that's just slowly draining and over time what's the what's the end result of that prolonged exposure oh, to yeah. stress if i'm not good at managing that well, i'll just share a couple of things and just raise your hand we can't see you but just raise your hand in an agreement of um, you know, sleep gets disrupted. So a lot of people are really struggling with either getting to sleep or staying asleep, um, or the quality of sleep is really off. One of the most fascinating things about this prolonged exposure to stress is that when our, when our brain and our body is experiencing that, there's a, one of the first things we lose is our sense of time. And they call that time collapsing. And so for those of you who aren't, aren't sure why you can't keep track of what day it is, Again, part of that is just the constant challenges our brain is experiencing right now. Um, but one of the big things that we're really noticing is uh, just from research is just how much people are fatiguing way faster. So things that didn't stress them out as much before or things that maybe they could manage before, they're noticing that they're just fatiguing way faster and they get to the weekend and they're collapsing and they just need way more rest and recovery than they did before. And then obviously that then impacts our ability to show up in a responsive way because it impacts how we think, it impacts how we feel about a situation. Um, something that's been interesting just in the last two weeks is we're hearing more stories from leaders who are talking about how they're noticing changes in behaviors from their team members through the lens of, they called it hyper ownership, where people are like protecting information and they're not as collaborative or they're more reactive. 
um, which makes sense because the brain is in survival mode and it's trying to keep, you know, its value in place so they can keep a job. And so it affects us emotionally, psychologically, physically, it affects our relationships. Well, and I think I can check about every one of those boxes off and, and the fatigue, especially. And part of that is I'm old, but I do think I'm fatiguing at a higher rate and it takes longer to recover. I'm curious when you are doing this work with companies, do you find that people share that openly with each other? Or does it take someone like you to come in and say, hey, here are some of the things you may be feeling. And if you do that, is there a theme where this is prevalent? Part of it depends on the culture and part of it depends on the leader and how open and vulnerable and transparent the people who are in positions of authority are about it. So the companies where we see team members more open to this are the ones where leaders are talking about, oh, it was, you know, I was really exhausted this weekend. How are you feeling? Um, One of the things we've heard from some team members that I thought was interesting is they're noticing that their leaders are um, doing a better job of asking how they're doing, but then they don't feel like they're prepared for the answer. Like they're asking us more, but then when we're transparent with them, it's like they don't know how to navigate that emotional response. You know, sometimes our culture is not shaped by what we do, but it's what we don't do. Mm-hmm. And so by not talking about it regularly, about not normalizing it. So even though we know we're in this collective, you know, pandemic and we know other people are in the boat, we think somehow we're the only ones who are having to shovel out the water. And is there reassurance or peace of mind that people get knowing that others are feeling the same way? That's a really important thing as leaders and as team members for us to keep in mind is there's a lot of people who are walking around thinking they're the only ones who are struggling keeping it together and we have to normalize that they're not. And it's also okay that they're not because we're in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. What are some tips or advice that we can give to help them be more vulnerable Mm. so that when they ask the people on their team, how are you? They don't just get the, yeah, I'm fine. They they can get to the true answer of I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling Mm. stressed. I've been asking people just, how are you sleeping? And by asking that question, what I'm acknowledging and letting and communicating to them is I know it's likely you're not sleeping well. I see that it's safe with me for you to share. And I, I will share that I've had the experience multiple times now where if we were meeting with a potential client and I'll ask them that just, you know, how have you been sleeping? Multiple times people have gotten very emotional just because I think they felt seen in a way that they hadn't. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing is just to think about the types of questions you are asking and can you ask the question beyond just the normal, how are you feeling to, um, you know, what's been hard, what, you know, how, how are you taking care of yourself right now to, to acknowledge the struggles that some people are experiencing. Or if you know, for example, like right now, parents, their stress levels have elevated in a way that had kind of come down after the end of the school year. Mm -hmm. And knowing this, right, just even acknowledging that you don't even need to ask the question. You can just say, Hey, Melissa, I know you've got, you know, three little girls. And I'm sure that this is a really hard time right now. And I just want you to know that I see how hard this is. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes we don't even need to have the conversation. We can just make the observation or acknowledge what people are going through. You know, I had a leader once who sort of asked me a similar thing, like, how do I get them to open up? You know, we just, that's another, those are the kind of conversations we have. And I said, what would it look like to start from just sharing some of the things you're struggling with and then just open it up and be curious who else is struggling with that? 
So if you're struggling with sleeping or if you, you know, have noticed that your appetite has changed or if you, you know, like, wow, I don't, anyone else like finding themselves a little irritable lately? Is that just me? And you're normalizing it for them and you're opening up them to be able to share it as well. The final thing I will say, because I think this is a really important point that we uh, like most of us fall into, is that if somebody is sharing pain or a struggle or stress or suffering, it is not your job to fix it and you don't need to solve it and you don't need to tell them what they should do. Just simply saying thank you for sharing that with me is, is all we need to say and just hold space for that. I was actually listening to another podcast, different topic, but along that vein where it was, and you don't need to say it's going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, you can sit there and not have an answer and yeah. that's okay just to acknowledge it and sit there with them in that context. Because mm-hmm. it might not be okay. Right. No, I, right? Yeah. you know, like you it might can't assure that you can't assure that. And it unintentionally in this beautiful intention of wanting to soothe them unintentionally, you're actually dismissing their experience of just acknowledging it. Wow. This is, this is really hard. I can see how, how difficult this has been for you. What, what would it look like for you just to say that? Like, I just, I really want to be with you. And I also recognize that um, I'm not sure how to show up for you right now, but I just want you to know I'm here. I think sometimes we're afraid to be messy of like, wow, that's all that's I'm processing that. That's a lot. I'm, I'm sorry that you're going through that right now. So I think there's something beautiful about that. And I think that worry or that fear, or that stress comes because we feel like we should be doing something more than just listening and being present and holding space for that mm-hmm. for them. And a lot I of think- leaders, I think, want to solve the problem. Totally. And not just leaders, just people generally, right? Mm-hmm. We, we see the hurt, whether you have high empathy or not, we all have mirror neurons. We all feel each other's pains on some sort of like deep biological level. It's, you know, it's why when somebody tells you some really hard news, I find, always find myself sort of doubling over. It's because our brains mirror each other. And so we feel that discomfort and we want to remove that for them. And I like the idea of just being honest and open and saying, hey, I want to be here. I, j- I just... How can I show up for you? What do you need from me? Um, and not trying to solve it, but it helps them. It creates that vulnerability mm-hmm. and lets them be seen and heard and hopefully share more with you in the future so there's that open communication. So, Sarah, I know personally that I'm pretty good at work with my resiliency. Although I'm fatigued and tired, it doesn't always show up in a bad way. But I would say at home, I'm not as good. And, uh, and and, and so many others. (laughs) Well, and I'm not proud to say it. Here's my vulnerability piece. I don't think you're saying it's okay to be a complete idiot and a jerk (laughs) uh, because I'm stressed and use that as an excuse. So can you confirm that that's the case? (laughs) You're not, you're not being an idiot jerk. (laughs) It doesn't, Um, it doesn't give me a free pass to behave poorly just because I'm under stress. So how do I, if I'm under duress and I'm dealing with this and I'm anxious, how do I do something different? So the first thing that I want to acknowledge is part of the reason why we tend to be messier with the people who are closest to us is one, because we're able to just really let down our guard and just be where we're coming from. The other thing is, you know, when we're at work, if you're my boss, there's a different level of power dynamic. So that's the first thing that I just want to acknowledge is that there is a reason we tend to be a little messier with the people who are closest with us. The other thing is we can't always control our reaction, right? We can't always control the stress reaction, 
And that's not the goal, right? Like that's not the goal of resiliency is not to never experience stress, but it's to like identify it quickly, name it, and then do what you need to do to recover from it. And so I think understanding that, you know, and I, and obviously there are times when we're all going to mess up or we're going to overstep or we're going to react. And I think what's really important is that when those moments happen, you have to take full ownership and it's not, and, and full ownership is not, hey, chick, I apologize that I jumped at you. I've just been having a really bad day. I'm actually blaming it on the bad day instead of taking ownership. But just, hey, I just want to own the fact that I didn't show up at my best when we have that conversation and I want to apologize. So I think that the more you can become aware of what your stress responses are, how they show up, how they show up in a way that's maybe not healthy so we can start catching them sooner. This is work from Brene Brown that I love so much, but it's all emotions are okay. It's just the behavior attached to it that's unproductive. And so it's okay that you're angry. It's not okay that you interrupted me. It's okay. And so that's where some boundaries we can help set with our loved ones or our coworkers. When, in one of your newsletters, you talked about giving people grace mm. in these times. Mm. So we, we all have the ownership of understanding what those stress responses and our reaction and how we show up and apologize or, or recognize where we've, we've misstepped. But speaking from the other side of mm. it, tell us about grace. So if I notice that somebody's dropping the ball and I can tell they're overwhelmed, that's different than say them being really toxic in their behavior towards me or a client or a coworker or a family member, whatever that might look like. And I think again, even, you know, so on, on the smallest level, it's just, we have to realize that it's right. It's called the, the fatal attribution error is that we tend to perceive people's behaviors as a character flaw or character defect, instead of recognizing that there might be other factors at play. And this is why I'm so passionate about helping um, people in positions of power really understand and honor human complexity to go, oh, you're triggered right now. It's not, you're not defensive because you're difficult. Your brain is triggered right now. I need to give you space or I need to use different tools to work through it, um, at least initially to get curious with it. And then again, there are times where if they start to cross the line, if there are things they're doing that are um, uh, causing damage to the company or to the relationship, where that's when it's okay to set those boundaries. And again, to the honor the emotion, but coach the behavior. Like, hey, Melissa, I know you've had a couple of really late nights lately. It's a, totally okay. And I get it that, you know, you're really stressed right now. What's not okay is how you spoke to Tracy in that meeting or whatever the case might be. Because sometimes we, we worry that like we confuse grace with just letting people behave poorly and it's just understanding where they're coming from so mm -hmm. we can show up with compassion and potentially some candor. It's no one else's job to regulate my emotions but me. And I think that that's something, again, we need to, it's, it's a deep level of ownership of, mm -hmm. your, it's not your job to regulate me, it's my job to regulate me. However, we know that if you are regulated and you're able, and when I say regulated, you're able to maintain a, sort of a calmer, more responsive, reflective perspective on a situation, it will have a greater likelihood of calming me down. But if you and I are both dysregulated, forget it. Yeah. No one's coming off that ledge. Mm -hmm. It's hard to fight with someone who doesn't want to fight back, but it because you want them to fight. You want them to fight, right? Yeah. When you're when you're in that mindset, you're looking for a battle, and sure. generally, people don't back down when they play chicken, and somebody mm. has to to de-escalate it. Otherwise, it's going to be a disaster. I see you fighting, and I'm still going to stay calm. 
because that's mm. how I'm going to show up and that's the impact I want to make. You can choose to still yell at me, but that's on you. And it's hard right now because there's different challenges we're experiencing. You know, one thing that's really unique right now that most of us maybe haven't experienced in such a profound, uh, intense way is just the novelty fatigue that we've had to refigure every decisions we're making, how we're working, how we're getting set up. I mean, think about when we first shut down, it was, how are, are we sending people home? Or are we not? If we're doing that, what does that look like? You know, uh, people who have practices, how do we keep people safe? And do we bring them on? And do we not? And we're ordering groceries. Do we go into the store? Do we not? And there's all of these decisions now that our brain is having to make that it didn't have to think about before. I mean, because that's, I mean, one of the things we have to understand that's at play now that's that most of us probably haven't experienced in such a prolonged way. And the reason that choosing to do something familiar can build resilience is because it's giving your brain a break so it can start to calm down so that the, you know, the hormones that are all being triggered from the stress response can start to metabolize and we can start thinking more clearly. Um, so that's something really specific in, in today's environment. But, you know, it's, it's unique to each person. You know, for some people it might be you know, for me, the two practices that I think we all should practice more is taking a breath or taking a break. Um, and that's because when we can do really deep breathing, uh, we are massaging that part of our right, our vagus nerve that we know starts to calm down that that stress response. And taking a break allows our again, our body to metabolize those stress stressors so that we can show up in a, a way that's more thoughtful and responsive. Is that, I mean, you, you asked about the cost. When our resilience is high, we can handle those stress responses in a way that's reflective and responsive. But when that starts to drain and deplete, and let's face it, our buckets all have holes in it right now, then we tend to be more reactive. You know, we, I was actually just in an interesting discussion on Twitter today about uh, the privilege of self-care. But that's not, that's a privilege mm. that some of mm. us have. Yeah. And if I am a mother who is trying to, figure out how I'm going to get money to feed my kids, self-care isn't, my brain can't even function with that. If I'm worried about my rent, if I'm worried about losing my job, if I've lost my job. And so I think that's something important for us to understand about resilience is that when we're at that lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. which is I just need basic needs, I'm not worried and my brain can't even think about resilience at this point. I think that's a really good point too, because as our listeners, so many of them are chiropractors and, and we can assume that their basic needs are met. Not all of mm -hmm. theirs will be, but their staff members or their patients or their neighbors, people in their community won't have that same privilege. Yeah. And it's important to be aware of that so that we can help others and, and acknowledge it. Well, we've talked on uh, prior episodes about emotional intelligence and connecting mm -hmm. with patients and connecting mm -hmm. with staff. And I think this this is a good reminder and tie-in that it's a unique opportunity for a chiropractor to, by checking in on their patients beyond the physical ailments, to build that connection and rapport at a potential, potentially deeper level than what they had. It's also interesting to think about chiropractors because probably mm -hmm. largely people are seeing them because they're experiencing physical manifestations of the stress that they're holding, whether they share that or not. It's a massive values clarification exercise for companies. And it yeah. is, you know, what is the impact I want to make? What is important to us really? How do I want to show up? And I think that it becomes a really important point of reflection for leaders and for business owners and companies to say, what's the, what's the story 
you know, what do we want the narrative to be about this time afterwards? And I always say people judge you on your actions, not on your intentions. Mm -hmm. And I can intend to be really good under stress and I can intend to be a good leader and a good friend, but I may not be. And Mm -hmm. people don't know what I intend to do. Yeah. We judge others on their actions, but we judge ourselves on our intentions. And I think that that could be a really good reminder for people. Not that your intentions don't matter, but your impacts matter so much more. And don't assume, like, don't get caught in the land of good intentions. Mm -hmm. Nobody thinks they're a micromanager. No, nobody thinks they're bad at receiving feedback (laughs) until they get it from someone they don't (laughs) like or they disagree with. You know, like we all think we build high trusting relationships until we find out that somebody doesn't trust us. And so it's like, have a healthy level of skepticism on your impact so you can be more intentional about it. So just in case we may have someone listening that isn't maybe the best manager. Why are you looking um, at me, Melissa? <laughs> I mean, we can all look in the mirror. We all have our moments. What tips can you give to listeners so they don't fall into that trap? Or what are, what are some of the common traps mm. that could put us in this spot where we're not the best manager that we could be? So I think for those of you who are like, no, I'm a good manager. I want you to, I just want you to try on and consider, but like, how can I get better? Um, I think that's actually a really healthy place to come from. So that's the first thing. But I, I, you know, I think that some of the, some of the traps we fall into is again, we confuse knowing something for doing something. Get really clear about what's the impact you want to make and share that. You know, my, my hope is that, that this is the kind of relationship we have and to invite that feedback and to invite those deeper conversations with team members on how to um, do it. Now, the tricky part about that is if people don't trust you, they're not going to tell you. Like that's what's tricky about management and power and uh, relationships is that if somebody really distrusts you, they're probably not going to be like, hey, chick, it's not working for me. Question you can ask is if there's one thing I could do, one thing I can move a needle on that would really impact, you know, your sense of meaningfulness, the work we do, what would that be? And really listen to that. But to just always be curious with what else could I be doing and to explore that with your team members. Thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, and I know we'll have lots of listeners engaged in this discussion as well as I'm sure some questions that will come from it. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks, thanks for having me and thanks for putting such a, an important focus on humans. Sometimes we forget that's who we are. And we're complicated and messy. And we're, compli- and we're beautifully complicated and messy. I would love to continue supporting you on your journey as business owners, leaders, practitioners. So I would love to connect with you on LinkedIn, Twitter. You can find us on social media under my name, sarahnollwilson.com, Sarah with an H, Noel with an N. (laughs) And you can check us out at sarahnollwilson.com, our website. We also have a weekly newsletter where we explore topics related to leading yourself and leading others. And we try to do it in a very human way. So we would love for you to sign uh, up and... Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Melissa, another great show with great guests that had all kinds of valuable information for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely, Chick. I'll tell you what, I was super excited to talk to the students. I really liked some of the creative ways that they were going about learning. And I also enjoyed listening to her approach of going out to talk to 
people that currently in practice in the geography that she's interested in setting up her practice and mm-hmm. give her a lot of credit from a courage perspective. Just be willing to go out and knock on doors or send emails to get that set up. So really, really well done. Um, I loved Sarah's conversations. Well, a lot of things that she said, but one thing that really stuck out to me was the knowing versus doing. We all know things that we should do, but is whether or not, do we do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And novelty fatigue is something that Sarah said, there's all this new stuff and we're operating, we're, we're working from home or we're wearing masks and all these different things that are new. And although it may be exciting at first or may feel okay, it's all that novelty fatigue because our brain is having to adjust to all these new things. If you're interested in learning more about our student ambassador program and starting into practice, please go to www.startingintopractice.com. And if you'd like some more information about the good work Sarah Noel Wilson does, check out our handout on how to identify four common stress responses and what to do when you see them in yourself or others. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. We encourage you to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that it will automatically be in your feed. And if you're so inclined, please leave a review. So great to spend time with all of you again today. And we look forward to talking to you next month. Take care. Stay well.